Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So, hey, folks, uh, what's coming up here is an edition of The Weeds that I did with Darren Jane live at the Texas Tribune Fest in Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, our, our producer, Jeff, he tells me this is this is the best audio we've gotten from a live show yet. So I think you're really going to enjoy that crisp, clear sound. Hi. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds, a live episode of The Weeds here at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lynn from ProPublica. Uh, we're really excited to be here. It's our, our second year at Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, last year, I think we recorded a really great episode. The best episode The Weeds has ever done. But then it then it didn't get recorded. Uh, but this year, we are hoping uh, that the... Uh, you know, audio gods and and Walmart will will shine Although, their blessings upon us. I do need everyone in this room to promise that if it turns out the audio of this episode is lost, you will tell all of your friends and colleagues that we delivered the most brilliant Make hour-long it sound disposition like the, like on the lost impeachment Led Zeppelin Ukraine, concert, like, and you now no longer need to hear anything else about it. It's so no. good. So <laughs> obviously, there's a big politics story today having something to do with. Um, Ukraine. Uh, unfortunately, we need to come up with something that uh, will work as a recording several days from now. And also, we were on airplanes all day and don't actually know what's what's happening. Yeah. And also, also while we do promise a Q&A at the end, we do not want a situation where you guys have to be following on your phones to tell us what is happening as the <laughs> yeah. progresses. So Trump, Trump won't be impeached this afternoon, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, but we, probably not. We wanted to talk about something which is at the intersection, this is the weeds, of real boring policy stuff and Trump antics. And that is homelessness, right. where it seems that the president uh, went to Los Angeles and got mad. Yes. <laughs> not necessarily in that order. So I think that to start out, I think that we should talk, there are two ways that I think that we should talk about homelessness. So there's the actual problem of homelessness. And then there's Trump whining because he thinks that the state of California is plotting against him. And so he will point out homelessness existing in large cities within California and other places to be mean. And also to make the point that homeless people, he does not particularly think about homeless Americans. He's thinking about the wealthy people that homeless people are somehow sometimes in front of or around or next to. 
Which, or behind. In fairness to Donald Trump, it is not like Donald Trump is the first person no. in the history of urbanized living to look at homelessness as a problem primarily of optics, right? Exactly. Now, just for some numbers, in the state of Texas, there are 25,000 people experiencing homelessness right now, and about 3,400 of those are experiencing what we call chronic homelessness. And chronic homelessness is if you have experienced homelessness for longer than a year, generally linked to some sort of chronic condition, whether it be mental illness or addiction. And so when we're thinking about homelessness, there's lots, there are different types of homelessness. There's situational homelessness, like, you know, there was a sudden death in the family and you can no longer afford the rent. And so that, you know, it's a homelessness that's spurred on by a specific event. There's episodic or cyclical homelessness. You are dealing with an addiction to heroin, you get clean, you get housing, you relapse, you lose your housing because a lot of sober, sober living situations, for understandable reasons, do not permit people who are still using to live within those housing facilities. And then, as I said, there's chronic homelessness, which is kind of what I think a lot of people think of when they think of homelessness, of people who are living on the streets or in their cars for years and years. But what we've been seeing recently is a rise in the number of working homeless people. And so, you know, 22% of homeless single adults are employed. 25% of adults within homeless families, and keep in mind, this is a family unit, are employed. And so you're seeing a number of people, you know, if you go to any city in Austin or Dallas or elsewhere, you see people who are working, living out of their cars, often in the parking lots of the place where they might work. And sometimes, you know, you, I was doing some research for this episode and there were situations in which people got permission from their jobs to sleep in their car in the parking lot of where they worked. And so I think it's important, you know, we'll talk about some of the challenges to addressing homelessness, which get at, you know, Matt's favorite thing in the entire world, housing. Sure. Um, but also, I think that the basic, and I th I'm glad, Dara, that you made this point, because a lot of it does turn into kind of the moment at which Trumpiness and lefty nimbyism come together. The idea that homelessness, you know, when you are protesting against the building of a homeless shelter because it might put shade over your park, I think that we've got a problem here. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's why I thought it was such an important issue to talk about, because right now the administration keeps saying things about, like, encampments. And, you know, when, when the administration or when authorities talk about cleaning up homeless encampments, they don't mean like taking the homeless people and providing them with with homes. They mean like, let's get rid of the tents and they'll figure it out from there. So right. I thought it was, a, it was time that we actually get into the actual issues behind homelessness in America and some of the actual possible solutions. Yeah. And I think, I mean, definitely the, uh, the politics and policy frameworks as you've identified them are like, they're fairly independent, right? There really have been changes to the homeless population. And at the same time, thinking of homelessness as a matter of encampments, as a matter of, you know, unsightliness and in defense to, you know, like, like to be fair to NIMBYs, it's not just a, I don't want this homeless shelter, you know, getting in the way of my view. It can also be a, I am worried about the stability of my neighborhood. I am worried about crime. I am worried about drugs. I am worried about who I am going to have to interact with on my way to and from work, which like is not a non-zero concern. That said, that's a concern that associates homelessness with the kind of chronic 
mental illness, drug use. You have to have something else going on in your life in order to be homeless that might have been true to some extent a decade ago and is now less true as the working homeless become more of a thing. And so we have at, at the same time, like a shift in the kind of policy reality of homelessness and a rise in political salience from both the NIMBY left as cities become more gentrified and as people feel a little bit more empowered in their recently adopted cities to start tagging things on social media and saying, hey, city government, like, why are these people just out here? This seems bad. This seems dangerous. You should fix this. I and with, it is enraging And with Fox News kind of weaponizing some of these visuals of tents, you know, in, in, uh, not necessarily to say bad faith, but certainly for people who otherwise are not going to encounter tent cities in San Francisco. I'm well, going to say it's kind of bad faith. <laughs> I think I think we can say, I, I think that the Jesse Waters discussing homelessness is not exactly, you know, I'm okay with saying that's in bad faith. Which is the thing that's interesting, right, is that you can have a sort of productive equilibrium on this. And I think we did. I mean, starting when George W. Bush was president, there was a big movement from the federal government uh, to sort of promulgate some ideas that were called housing first as a way to address chronic homelessness. And, and like the basic idea of that is, right, like the old thinking had been, okay, if you are living on the streets and you're addicted and you don't have a job, what you need to do is like get clean first, then we can find some kind of sober arrangement for you. We can help you get a job. Then you get a job. And now that you're sober and employed, you've shown that you're like worthy for social support and we're going to try to help you out. Uh, and, and Housing First like turned that on its head. And it said, look, we have people who are living on the streets. They are generating a lot of calls to the police. They are going in and out of emergency rooms when the weather gets really bad or when they get sick. We're spending tons and tons of money on what's actually a relatively small fraction of the total people experiencing homelessness. And if we can just get you like an apartment and put you there, uh, that is simpler. It's better for you, but also cheaper for the city. And then we can bring services to you. If you say, I would like to get treatment, uh, you can provide it to somebody who now at least has a stable address, right? You can apply for jobs. You, you have an address. And homelessness started to go down, right? And this, like, it, it leveraged the fact that, like, People living in urban areas would rather that, like, their parks be parks rather than, uh, you know, sleeping accommodations. But also the people sleeping in the parks would rather have sleeping accommodations, right? So it was a sort of a productive paradigm. And I think the problem that you're starting to see, particularly in the big West Coast cities, is that the overall uh, quantity of housing has just become so scarce that like humane efforts, like Los Angeles has actually put a lot of money into homelessness services, but the number of people experiencing homelessness is going up anyway because the price of housing is accelerating so much. And that's when you tip over into like, we got to just round them up. Right. And I think it's important, you know, I try to differentiate about like different types of homelessness, but there's also understandably different types of homeless people. And the people mm -hmm. who are, who you, you move to Los Angeles because you got a job, and how you know your housing is a little tenuous and you lose your job that's a different that's a different situation than someone who ha is struggling with an addiction or who has been on the streets for 15 to 20 years and so a lot of the resources that are available 
for example, in DC, there, you know, there have been some efforts to expand resources availability to the kind of the working homeless. But if you are a recently homeless person, you don't want to go to a shelter because shelters are dangerous. You're on, you know, the safest place for you to be is probably in your car or in whatever you can find to stay in. And so it's really important because that's kind of the new story. There's a new homelessness. And I think that that's part of the increase. It's not just the concerns about visibility. It's about who is becoming homelessness as well. Right. And I actually, like, it's not, in addition to there are legitimate reasons why you might not want to go to a right. shelter, like, if a shelter has limited space and is doing right. triage, I don't know if the, there is, and I'm going to put this in show notes, which is another way of saying everyone in this room is in worse shape than everyone who is not in this room and gets to click on the link. Um, but the New Republic had a really excellent story uh, last month on the, the rise of the working homeless. And the protagonist in that story, who's a working mother who lost the apartment that she and her family were renting because it got condemned due to exposed wiring issues. There's a scene when she's doing intake at like a service shelter and she, you know, she's like, no, you, you don't understand. I've never done drugs. I don't drink alcohol. Like I work, I've been working. This is not why we're here. We're here because we can't find a place to live. And at the end of the intake, she's told that her like need score isn't high enough probably to qualify for services because when you only have limited resources and you need to be taking care of the highest need people first, someone who like has family members whose couches they're all bouncing between, even if they know their luck is about to run out on that count, uh, and who does have a job and like has clearly demonstrated the ability to live independently may not be the first place that you want to, that like, that you can spend that money if you're trying to look at highest need first, which actually brings me to like a historical question because I personally, in the paradigm that I had before doing research for this episode in which I totally thought was still thinking of homelessness as like a, as another epiphenomenon of like mental health and, and drug issues in many cases was tying it to the, uh, you know, post-institutionalization paradigm, right? In the same way that, like, to a large extent, the current jail crisis in America is the result of police having to be first responders uh, for people who there is no institutional way to deal with them anymore because we used to just stick people in asylums and that wasn't a very good idea and nobody bothered to come up with a better solution. Is that something where, like, either because that was a source of housing supply or because that was something that now other service providers need to deal with? Has that like, did deinstitutionalization also like cause the kind of problem in housing policy that opposed so, in jail policy? But my understanding of that is that it did historically that in the 1980s you saw an increase in the number, particularly of chronically homeless people who had sort of multiple overlapping addiction and mental health issues, largely because there had been both a deinstitutionalization and also uh, a, just a disinvestment in these kind of healthcare programs in a lot of places that combined with a very severe recession in 1982 to sort of create like the modern homelessness oh, paradigm. Yeah. But for 15 years or so, at the beginning of the, the 21st century, we had really cut away at that very substantially. And what you're seeing now, I mean, the, the point of like the rise of working homelessness, right, is that what you're seeing is, is that a, a much larger share of people 
who, rather than it being that they're like having trouble functioning in the labor market, it's that like earnings don't buy you housing in everywhere. I mean, we're, we're here in, in Austin and, and, you know, this is exactly the kind of city where economic growth, you know, is proving to be, it's, it's like the tide rises, but not all boats quite lift fast enough. And the housing situation can actually get worse, right? And if you look at the cities that are having the biggest uh, homelessness problems right now, it's like Seattle, San Francisco. It's not cities that are having the hardest. It's not places that have the weakest economies or the places that have the hardest time providing services to people. It's many times the places that have the hottest economies. And so people with low-wage jobs just can't afford... uh, a place to live there and sort of has to be addressed on like, just like the conventional housing side. Like you have to build more apartments. Right. No, the reason that I was thinking about institutionalization in particular is because in the Trumpian politics of this, it's very interesting that this has come up at the same time that uh, the president appears to be really invested in the response to mass shootings is involuntary commitment. Yes. Right. Right. Like this is, there is kind of a real hardening, at least in the mind of, you know, Donald J. Trump that there are just some people who should be like kept out of society and this will solve things. And it's kind of interesting to read uh, or like to to read about, to be clear, I have not read this report. Um, the, the president actually put out, well, the White House put out a Council of Economic Advisors report on homelessness recently, um, presumably tied to the president's recent interest in going after the state of California for this. But it's a pretty standard conservative document that at one point actually says, if you... Take a housing first approach. You'll clear up beds and shelters. Shelters will have to compete to fill those beds and so will raise the quality of their services. And if you raise the quality of shelter services, it will make homelessness rise again. Um, yeah, it's which wild. is very impressive as a, as a feat of logic and makes sense if you believe that there are some people who just really are determined to be antisocial, right? right? That like if you see homeownership as an important part of being in society, just like if you see not killing a lot of people as an important part of being in society. There are some people who are just characterologically unable to live that way, and that therefore making it hard for them to live any other way is the most important thing. And there, there, are, there are a lot of things wrong with that logic. Yes. Oh, just a host of different <laughs> Yeah, no, and I don't mean to like take no, no, this no. away from actual solutions into like the Trump no, but I think it's things. I think it's worth talking about because I think that the, the mental health piece of this and the idea of, you know, like, why don't, I've seen this in a host of conservative publications that like, there used to be this time in which we could put these people away somewhere. And then Geraldo Rivera did this television program and then we stopped doing that. Um, There was an infamous Geraldo Rivera documentary about a mental health facility that was horrifying. And he was very young. And that basically is how he got the fame that he has now. But I think that one, there's an understanding of how mental illness interreacts with homelessness and violence Mm. that is not necessarily based on... um, Science? Facts. Uh, So I think that that's worth noting as well. Also because the proportion of homeless, you know, one, pulling homeless people is hard (laughs) for understandable reasons. But a you know the proportion of people who are chronically homeless who are dealing with severe enough mental health issues that you even institutionalization of some sort, which don't even like we can't even get into just that issue because that 
there's, you know, one of the reasons why deinstitutionalization happened was because advocates for people living with mental illness were like, you know, schizophrenia, you can medicate schizophrenia. This is something that people, mental illness is something that millions of people live with every single day and are able to be part of society in whatever way they see fit. And, you know, it doesn't require being hospitalized. But also most homeless people, most homeless Americans, and I want to be very clear because sometimes we talk about the homeless as if it's like an issue we need to face. Like we need to deal with like the Saudis and Ukraine and the homeless. No, like these are our neighbors. And for a lot of people, those, you know, those are the people who come to go to church with us. These are people living in our communities. And the vast majority of them are not dealing with the types of severe mental illness that Donald Trump seems to think that should require an, an automatic 3130 hold for the rest of your life. Well, and, you know, I, this is not the first time either that you see a sort of a disjoint between, like, what the president seems to think and what the president's team it's seems to think, right? I mean, right, I mean, so that, that CA report, if, if you read it, I mean, it it's basically an effort to justify uh, why you shouldn't spend any more money on a homelessness problem, right? Because a natural thing many people, particularly in a in a liberal state or city, might think is, well, this is a social problem. We should spend more money on programs for it. Right, right? because if you believe that homelessness is the problem, and this is, I think, another issue with, like, gauging public opinion and public salience on this, right? Is right, yeah. Some people who say that homelessness is a crisis are saying the homeless are the problem. And some right. people are saying these people need houses. Right. Well, but right. So, so the report, you know, it goes through two things. And one, which I think is right, is it talks about why is this a particularly severe problem in California? And it's not because California is an unusually stingy state. It's because California is an unusually difficult state to get uh, house building permits, right? So that's like, I think, like a sound argument. And then there's this sort of galaxy brain argument <laughs> that like trying to help people makes things worse because they're out quitting and that maybe if the cops hassle people more. They will like miraculously decide they should get a house somewhere. Which has the um, convenient fringe benefit of because Donald Trump is less averse to spending money, at least on the things he likes, than his team is, you can reach this nice little consensus where it's okay to spend money if you're like, you want to build a federal warehouse to put homeless people in because at least you're not right. making at it easier for them to be homeless. At least it's bad, right. And, and so Trump, I mean, so I, I grew up in, in New York uh, in the 80s and, and I always feel like I understand where Trump is coming from because uh, we're, we're coming from the same place. And I think he's participating in a debate that I remember from when Ed Koch and David Dinkins were mayor. And this was about, you know, courts had sort of, put restrictions on the ability of the city to tell people, like, no, you can't be out here living on the streets, right? And so the city government's view for a long time was like, look, like, our, our hands are tied here. Like, we would like to address these quality of life problems that you, the normal citizen of New York, uh, are experiencing. We would like to tell people they can't be napping in the libraries, right? Stuff like that. Um, and eventually, you know, Giuliani came in as mayor and, you know, some different judges were around and they, they, they got tough 
on the behavior of people experiencing homelessness, right? So there was this famous thing about squeegee men. Uh, this was like by, uh, you know, there'd be like big traffic jams by the bridges and tunnels on Manhattan. So people would come and, and, and do your windshield and, you know, kind of shake you down for money, right? And so Giuliani dispatched police officers to like not take care of murders, but to hassle the squeegee guys. Uh, ah, yes. Broken windows policing. Well, it was a big thing. You know, I, I mean, there was like a, there was a crime control theory of broken windows policing, but there was also a, just like a middle-class lifestyle politics, right? Where like, I, I mean, I remember it was like white middle-class New Yorkers were not in fact being murdered at high rates, even when the murder rate was high, uh, but we were being hit up for money by squeegee men at high rates, right? So he was directly addressing an issue that impinged on the lives of his uh, constituency there with, with that, right? And and this has, I think, actually very little to do with contemporary um, homelessness issues. But, you know, Trump is not, Trump is not the kind of guy to like fire up the Urban Institute's report <laughs> on like what is driving these trends and stuff like that. So he just goes back to the well. He's like, I remember hearing a lot about homelessness in the 80s. And I remember what I thought about it then. I'm hearing about it again now. So I'm going to like say the same right. thing again. It's an again. attitudinal similarity because his, you know, even when he tweets about it, it's about like these people are outside of our beautiful buildings and outside of like, you know, our wealthiest citizens. It reduces the prestige of yes. Los Angeles. Yes. Which I'm like, well, it's pretty, it's probably not too fucking hot for homeless people either. So <laughs> I mean, they're not having a great time. I agree with you that it's divorced from the policy reality, but it does strike me that the way in which it has become a politically salient issue is still very similar, right? right. Because the other thing about the working homeless is that they are much less visible than the chronic homeless. Mm -hmm. Right. Either because they do have the like family connections to be like sharing couches, which as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, one of the big problems with like the racial wealth gap is the amount of stress that it puts on the family members who do have homes to then, you know, be part of that kin network um, or because they're able to stay in their cars in the parking lot of their office. Like the way that the homeless population is counted is a shelter and street count. It's not a knocking on the windows of cars at night in January saying, is anyone in there? Right. So both like in the literal policy sense and in the, if you think of homelessness as something that you are going to encounter as someone walking through an urban environment, you're dealing with the chronic homeless. And so I think that the kind of NIMBY gentrifier encounter with the homelessness problem as it exists, even though it's a different problem, is still very similar. And that kind of like, you know... Obviously, I don't think anyone who is a podcast host of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network is has a direct line to Donald Trump and is going to change Donald Trump's mind. But I do suspect that many of the that our listeners are probably more likely to be dealing with this kind of in in the context of you know their own metropolitan area politics. And so, like, I don't know what is what, what is the way to address this in the NIMBY framework or you know NIMBY. I think NIMBY and gentrifier are two different populations in general that here are meaning the same thing. Um, insofar as it's a it's a concern mostly with the presence of homeless people in your daily life, uh, you have to make a Section Eight entitlement program. I mean, I think that's like I mean the number one biggest thing, right? Is like so we have if you fall below a certain income threshold, right? Like you get Medicaid. Um, if you are a school-aged child, you get to go to public school. Um, if you fall beneath a certain income threshold, you get food stamps. Uh, housing assistance is not structured that way, right? And in most of the country, you could take care of this problem 
like that. Yeah, like, uh, do you want to talk about Salt Lake City, dude? By, by changing this, um, yeah, so uh, Salt Lake City, well, this is not exactly what they did, right? But like Utah had like one of the most successful housing first ventures. And that's because the ambient background of housing in, in Salt Lake City is pretty affordable, right? So then they could focus resources on the minority of, of people who did have complicated social service needs. Um, and then it was fairly easy to create transitional housing for other people. Because the typical scenario that will arise for, for working people is, you know, you're in a relationship. And so you have two people who are splitting the rent. And then for whatever reason, like that breaks up suddenly. And particularly if that happens at also the same time you get sick or your car breaks down, right? You have like just two pieces of bad luck hit in the same month. And then you can't afford a place. You had to leave your place. You can't get a new place. And, and now you're out, right? And if housing is generally affordable, you can sort of create like a, like a social service trampoline to like catch people. And then they, they just get a little bit more money and they can go get a place, right? And you have very serious problems though in places where apartments are just extremely expensive. It has become hard. So like, like Los Angeles has really invested a lot of money in trying to do social services, but the number of people who can't afford the rent in Los Angeles is growing faster than they can grow the social services. And you have to like, you have to have houses. Right. Anyway, I and, like to talk about that. Yeah, and I think that <laughs> it, it's important also because I think chronic homelessness is probably, you know, there are a lot of cities right now where their solution in some part to chronic homelessness is taking putting homeless people on buses and then busing them out of the city and then considering the problem to be solved. That if we could not do that, that would be great. But I also think like there are there need to be separate solutions in my mind for there is, you know, as we said there's kind of episodic homelessness cyclical homelessness, where it's kind of, you know, for example, if you are living in a so sober living facility, but you are still friends with people who still use, and you are like, you know, my friend is like living on the streets right now. I really want them to come stay with me. I know that they're still using, but I'm sure it's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. The sober living facility will say, you are both now out. And so you that ruins a lot of built up stability. And especially in environments in which like, it's you're asking people to choose between the community they they continue to know whether or not that community is good for them it is still the existing community or you're going to a sober living facility where a lot of times sober living facilities have really stringent understandably stringent rules not just on drug use but on you know, your basic activities that is a slightly you know that challenge the issues facing working homeless people and the issues facing those kind of episodic kind of, you know, a crisis happens and that's how homelessness results. That's different from chronic homelessness. But because in urban environments, if I'm walking in downtown, in Chinatown or down Connecticut Avenue in DC, I am likely not seeing the work, working homeless. I am seeing chronically homeless people. Right. And I think that visual is a different issue. It can be very easy. I think that there are lots of issues where the need for a policy response can trump any efforts to address, like, what can individuals do? What can civil society institutions do? And, like, I joked with Matt before this episode that it turns out that my feelings about homelessness have a strong Marianne Williamson streak to them, which is, like, not really true. Like, we are not going to levitate the tents out of San Francisco. But I do think, I mean, I just, uh, I was raised 
assuming that when you go to a hotel, of course, you're going to take the samples of the like hair products and such, because when, because once a year, either the school or the synagogue is going to hold a drive for people who like need to use those hygiene products. Um, and so I've definitely been interested as I've seen hotels move to like dispensers for environmental reasons about the kind of downflow effects of that. Um, it's always seemed to me that helping the homeless is one of those easy apolitical ways to help humans. Like it's not quite as apolitical as like helping puppies or sick kids, but it's definitely on that spectrum of charities and volunteer things that like no one is going to be mad at you if you do. And those are often filling immediate needs that while not going to solve the problem are in fact shared between chronic and working, like everybody is going to need access to hygiene. Everybody is going to need access to, you know, a place where they can get a good hot meal, uh, where they're, you know, where like they can get their medical needs taken care of, that kind of thing. And One so other there thing really that, is yeah. kind of a, you know, if the, if your concern is that the people in your community are making you feel less safe, you should probably start with, and I say this as someone who like literally lives in a gentrifying neighborhood and has not done any volunteering since they moved to the District of Columbia. Um, but like, I think it's worth thinking about if there are people in your community, first and foremost, what obligation does that put on you? I would also note that, and another very, very quickly, that if you're thinking about things to do, um, I know some of my church, for example, does an ID ministry. Because if you'll remember, like the first day at whatever job you took, uh, you had to fill out a bunch of forms. And a lot of those forms involved photocopying your passport or your state ID or your driver's license, and you need your social security number. If you're chronically homeless, where is your social security card? Do you have one? Do you know where it is? You know, do you have a pass? Like, you probably don't have a passport. So <laughs> making sure that people have the documents they need to even begin to access social services is a really great start. And now, Matt, okay. you can say the thought that you have had. I oh. want to do an elegant pivot yes. oh. to moral foundations. Damn it. I'm yes. sorry. Wow. We're Damn really it. sorry, Matt. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions. Best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. That brings us to our white paper. The paper is from the American Journal of Political Science. Uh, it's Ideology Justifies Morality. Political beliefs predict moral foundations. And so this paper used moral foundations theory, MFT. I'm looking off my phone so I do not get these words wrong and get angry emails from anyone. You're so, angry I mean, anyway. <sighs> this paper is a pretty hot take. I mean, it is a hot take, but basically the argument, in a sense, is that people in some ways are changing perhaps how they deal with moral issues based on how it fits with their political beliefs. Right. Well, and I think to back this up, you just you set up like the the old paradigm, right? So I think Jonathan Haidt is probably the, the biggest popularizer of this. And so he has this thing where he says, look, people think about morality along, I think it's five axes. Right. And one of them is like, caring for others, and one of them is about purity and disgust. And he shows that there's a strong correlation between these moral foundations and people's political worldviews. And, and like you can see in the homelessness discussion exactly right. how yeah. that plays out. If you're somebody whose primary motivation is about caring for the weak, then you think about this kind of situation in one way. If you have another worldview, you tend more to think, as conservatives do, you worry about the incentives. Well, if I help people who are in a bad situation, does that actually attract more people into the badness, right? And and so that's a whole thing. Yeah, but if you've ever read a, a story with the headline, like, liberals and conservatives' brains work differently or something like yeah. that, it's probably either a bastardization of, of this literature or a bastardization of the bastardization. Um, but that's kind of the direction that but, it's pointing But the in. hypothesis of this paper is that it's actually the opposite. So the authors, uh, Peter Hatsumi, Charles Crabtree, and Kevin Smith, uh, they basically, they did analyses that were based on the American National Election Studies panel from 2008 and a, a sample of uh, hundreds of Australians, which, you know, that's a lot of Australians. Um, and so basically you give them a moral foundations questionnaire. And what they found is that you couldn't tell based on the score whether or not they were liberal or conservative. But if you, they were liberal or conservative, you could kind of tell what their answers would be. And so that's a reverse, as Matt said, of kind of what we had been thinking previously. And um, The Atlantic did a big write-up of this paper. And I think the biggest finding, you know, I think the biggest conclusion that a lot of people came to is like, that, you know, you can see this in kind of the age of Trump. But I think that it's something, it was an interesting paper to me because I think what determines your politics or how much your politics determines who, what you think and how you act morally, I think that that's a really fascinating question. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, when this literature was really the hot thing in like kind of explaining ideology and political alignment like five or so years ago, it was a very elegant way to square the reality that most children retain the political ideologies of their parents with the lack of wanting to like say that politics is a genetic thing or to kind of reduce any role of free will, right? You don't want to say like, it's not like, 
you know, if, if you are not a 100% doctrinaire Marxist and believe that your class position determines everything, it's a little bit hard to say, okay, yes, you're, you as a child may have different beliefs about a lot of things from your parents, but like you're generally going to follow that trajectory unless you can say, well, actually maybe there is this psychological basis that either is genetic or is, you know, or is like deeply rooted in nurture that structures the way you look at the world. If in fact it's turtles all the way down, which is kind of the implication here, right? right? That it's like there is something else that puts you in a political tribe and then you adopt the ideas about how the world should work that your political tribe has. And those views evolve as your political ideology evolves, which is the other kind of key finding of this study that like in different waves of this, your moral foundations in wave two don't predict your political ideology in wave three, but they do predict your political ideology in wave two. So there's evidence that the two of them kind of evolve together and can predict each other. Um, even if it's, they can predict each other, even though it's pretty clear that moral ideology is not predicting political ideology. But like, this kind of blows up the elegant way of thinking about the genetic, you know, the, the like, the inheritance question, right? Because it means that there's something else that you're just kind of, you're on team red or team blue, and that determines everything else. Right. Which raises very uncomfortable questions about when and whether it is worth talking to people on the other side. Right. And well, I think that that's something, you know, as that is my job, I think that, that, raise, that, <laughs> that it does raise a lot of questions. And I think that, you know, while thinking about this question, there's a ton, you know, I think all of us can come up with a lot of anecdata about like, I, oh, that's absolutely 100% true about like X entity. But it'll be interesting to see, because I think that this is such a hot take of a paper, as you said, that I, I'm curious because I'm just, you know, when I read it, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But then I'm now thinking about it, it does kind of raise the point of like, how deterministic is this? Right. I mean, but I, I think what's what's interesting, right, is like part of the sort of moral foundations project was to try to suggest that we could lower the temperature on political debate by reconceptualizing these things. So I like go back to the homelessness, right? Because because this was a big like this was a, a hot literature when Bush was president and it and it worked on the homelessness question, right? That you can say like, look, we have like a different view of like what exactly is bad about these people living on the streets. But if we can agree agree that what we are trying to do here is reach a consensus that will get us to a point where fewer of them are on the streets, but also that is a consensus, we can hit upon, right, like housing first, right, a Republican administration, it's kind of soft-hearted, but it's structured to achieve what the tough-minded conservatives wanted. It's all kind of good, right? I now finally understand the push for comprehensive immigration reform. There you go. Yeah. Um, and... If it turns out that that's not true, right, that like actually these ethical commitments are downstream of ideological commitments, it means that like, yes, like you can have one-off compromises on low salience topics. Like homelessness in the mid-aughts was not the subject of highly polarizing debates. As you're saying on immigration, right, it was easy enough to reach some kind of deal as long as you have just like some guys in the back room of Congress somewhere working stuff out. But when it becomes a media topic, right, it becomes very, uh, very tough, very hard. And you could say, well, okay, that's like a pathology of how talk radio works or what's on Fox News. But also it's like, look, if actually people's um, like ground level morality is being shaped by their high level political commitments, then it stands to reason that anything that becomes a major topic of discussion will just repolarize because people like have 
different high-level commitments, and you and you can't quite like work it out. That right way. at the point at which you're saying, well, that's a pathology of blank, and the ways you're filling in the blank are the only ways that issues rise to the level right. of public debate and salience. It's not like we have a lower temperature alternative. Right. And Oiga Vault. Yeah. Although basically. the other thing is, like, this is this is not a static thing, right? I mean, and this is kind of where the Trump salience comes in, is the easy example is like, oh, conservatives say they care about purity, but they didn't care about grabber by the pussy. Like, that's the dumb way to put it, but it expresses the very valid point that how conservatives, especially evangelicals, conceptualize the, imp the relevant importance of personal behavior and, you know, public policymaking when it comes to sexual morality has changed um, substantially over the last 20 years. Like, those changes, you know, we don't have a robust theory for how that works coming out of this literature because the literature is very like, how can we measure this in the populace? But that definitely is kind of an avenue out of this, right? Like if we can demonstrate that people's moral foundations are shifting as their political ideologies shift, what is driving that? When are people actually falling out of one political coalition or the other? You know, is it like where where are the realignments and breaking points? There are lots of things I would like to uh, I would like to assign these authors, even though to be completely honest, their methodology is uh, fairly high level math, and I am kind of assuming that it's correct. But one of these days, someone who actually knows math is going to come on the weeds and tell me that I'm just totally putting too much faith in science. Yeah, I I think that there is very much of a sense because I'm I was just thinking I'm like well at a certain point you know, how far does this go? Like what, how, you know, what morals are unshapeable? You know, are there some, like what, what could change? Cause I mean, you know, I deal with conservatives and Republicans all the time. And even when they're talking about like a dramatic tectonic shift in how conservatives think about a, a, a specific issue, they still put it in like conservative right-leaning parlance. So it's sort of like, sort of works underneath that matrices. And so I'd be interested, like, what are the limits to this? How does it work? And, you know, how the back and forth between the, you know, politics and morality, I feel like it's a, it's ever flowing. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We should probably open it up. To Do some questions. Do some questions. All right. We're going to get um, somebody has a microphone, I think. All right. We got we got this guy back there. Thanks for the discussion. How the, the big thing about homelessness is, I think the growing homelessness issue is um, the income inequality that's growing. Um, how how does that tie into all this stuff? And also the unemployment rate is never a, a true number of people who aren't employed or are just smoothing off their spouses or siblings or people who are on disability and stuff. And how does that kind of work its way into homelessness? Thank you. I mean, what, what's interesting is that homelessness does not raise, it, it, correlate that clearly with the, the labor market, right? That it's, it's not the case that the Great Recession created a huge spike in, in homelessness, for example. Uh, even though there were a lot of economic problems associated with it. And even though it was in some ways, you know, sparked by the collapse of- Right, like, but yeah, actually, but the actually that's market. the thing. Houses became very anomalously cheap. 
right? At the same time, people were losing their jobs. The biggest problem, I mean, it is a kind of an inequality problem, except not the inequality between the very, very top and the average, but between average people and people at the, at the bottom, right? So when you have income levels in a city rise a lot, as they have been in Seattle, right? If you then you don't need to have lost your job. You just need to have not gotten some new, much better job. And you can fall behind in the sort of rat race to keep up with, with the rent. You don't have that problem as much in uh, southern areas where housing growth uh, in sort of suburban sprawl has been much more robust. You are, though, starting to see it specifically in Austin, uh, you know, really increases in, in housing costs. And so it's that just sort of mismatch between what's the labor market doing and what's the supply of houses has been what's driving sort of contemporary uh, increase in, in homelessness in the United States. And it's very, I don't want to say it's a hard problem exactly, because in some ways, like, it's a very easy problem. Like, we have, you know, you talk about climate change, and it's like, how are we going to do transoceanic shipping without diesel fuel? And like, I don't know, right? Um, how are we going to build apartment buildings? Like, we know how to do that. It's just that it really ties in with a lot of like, People don't want people sleeping in the park, but people also don't want a shelter across the street. But people also don't want like a big building blocking their view. They don't want more traffic congestion on their streets. And it's like something's got to give in a like growing society. Are there organizations or people who are working on this problem of I think what we really need are high density um, housing for people with lower incomes, especially in cities like San Francisco and Seattle and I'm sure everywhere. <laughs> Uh, yes, um, there's a, you know a growing network of groups, uh, it, it often often called YIMBY, um, have in their name. Uh, there's there's some great ones, YIMBY Action in, in California. There's a group called Neighbors for More Neighbors in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, so you know there's there's stuff happening. I mean there's there's a growing uh, I think chorus of people who who want to do the right thing. I mean and of course it's true right that these kind of housing supply issues take a while to sort of reach people in the most dire economic conditions. And like, they just, people need need money. Thank you. Um, so with short-term leases, that's both uh, driving up prices and also removing units that people could live in. Can you speak to like policies or taxes that could help go towards? <laughs> like Airbnb, you mean? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I... I I, I like, in some ways, the way Airbnb has worked its way onto the agenda because uh, left-wing people like to complain about tech startup companies. Um, and this, though, gets them into the point where they're saying that, yes, the relative supply and demand of housing units is a factor in housing affordability, which is true, right? When you have people uh, turning over what could be uh you know, rental apartments and turning them into sort of quasi-hotels that increases scarcity. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think taxing those units is a good idea in cities that have a lot of them. But also it stands to reason, like, once you are accepting that the housing supply is an important uh, driver of affordability, then you also have to look at regulations that prevent you from building, right? So, you know, I think a smart thing to do is to tax short-term rentals, maybe take that money into affordable housing production funds, but then also look on the regulatory side at like, well, how easy is it to, to go build things? Um, you know, individual cities need to look at their economic mix because having tourists visit can be a real boon to, to certain places. Um, it's a it's a great 
great way to generate jobs, generate tax revenue, things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can get it can get out of control, um, particularly if you're not paying attention, right? You can start seeing dwellings vanish. So I, I actually live in the Twin Cities and the radical change in zoning, I think, is going to be really good for our cities. And it seems like in the Southwest that um, places like Texas seem to have no zoning and that that would be better because you build more housing. But how much of those policy decisions are really designed to protect an ownership stake in housing? Yeah. <laughs> And this is an overstatement. You know, people often say that Houston has no uh, no zoning, uh, which is technically true. But what that means is that it doesn't have designated separation of like residential and commercial uses. It doesn't mean there's no regulation of like parking or building size, things like that. And when you're talking about um, like housing scarcity, whether it's it's Minneapolis or Austin or anywhere else, it, the issue isn't really have to do with the the separation of uses in, in Euclidean zoning. It's about uh, limits on, on floor area, uh, things like that. And, you know, it's in part, I think, about trying to protect home values. This is um, William Fischel's home voter hypothesis. I, I kind of think that if you talk to people in urban areas, that the concern almost is more simple and it's about uh, parking and traffic. Um, where they're not mistaken, right? An apartment building opened across the street from my my row house recently, and a lot of people live in that building, and their cars go in and out of the garage. Um, it's not a big deal for me because I don't drive my car very much. And, you know, when your city becomes a place where lots of people walk, it's not a big deal. Uh, but, like, you know, it's, it's not wrong to say that if there were more people living on your street, there would be more car traffic. Um, you just kind of have to decide at some point, like, what's the, the overriding uh, priority? Um, hi, this is Carol, and I lived in Seattle for seven years, and I just moved here about a year ago. And I worked a whole lot with the homeless when I was there as a volunteer. And some of the things that I think that they've done right is that uh, they have made some refurbished motels, which have support services on site. And uh, the uh, but one real problem with the camps is that we are uh, children are allowed to live in the camps. And there is a place called Mary's Place where a mother and the children can go. A lot of times they don't want to separate from their partner or, you know, the husband. And uh, it's really dangerous to have the children in the camp because there are no, um, there's really little uh, checking of backgrounds on the people who move, who come into it. You were talking about the ID situation. That's one of the reasons. I mean, they'll say things like, have you ever been a child molester? Nope, sure haven't. Okay, so I'm serious. So, um, but the other problem which you brought up in terms of the driver's license, um, it costs honestly hundreds of dollars for a homeless person to get a driver's license because I help them. And what it, the reason it costs so much is because uh, to get a license in Seattle, you had to pay off any fines from previous states, okay, before you get your license. And then they also make them, um, that state, and this particular man is from Detroit, well, Detroit's broke. So they're not going to release the license until they pay a reinstatement fee. And then you have to pay like $125 to do a driving test, but they don't have a car. So then I lend them my car. My husband would have a nervous breakdown. But, you know, we've got this cycle of problems going on. And I think the secret is, if there is a secret, is to have small group support systems. We can't have them going from one building to another building, getting on the bus. And I think if you can break them into like little hubs, 
then there's going to be some success. I also think it was interesting that you mentioned kind of talking about like, you know, they don't want to separate the person from their partner or their husband. I think it's really important that we are talking about homeless family units, like family units where people are making entirely sensible decisions for them that make sense for them. So for example, um, my mom for a long time was a court appointed special advocate for neglect and abused children in Cincinnati, uh, pro kids in Cincinnati. There are organizations across the country, but she dealt with a host of people who were kind of on the brink of homelessness. But, you know, they would, people would ask them like, well, you could send your child away. And they're like, absolutely not. Never. 100% zero. No. And so I think it's really worthwhile when we're thinking about these issues and thinking about, for instance, like children in the encampments. I think that that a service that could allow at least mothers and children, ideally families, to stay together and get support services to keep kids not just safe, but also, you know, out of foster care systems, out of the even short term foster care, which can be extremely risky for children. I think it's really worth thinking about, you know, these are families. These are families like our families. And I think that, you know, how we talk about this and thinking, you know, even using phrases like family unit, it sounds so like uh, vast and above. When we're talking, we're talking about families. We're talking about, you know, I, I've known a, a host of homeless folks uh, pretty well. And when you talk to them about just like, you know, they're dealing with everyday normal challenges. And I was, you know, Dara mentioned things about like, you know, dropping off um, like shampoo and stuff like that, but even things like menstrual products and stuff like that, things that people are afraid to ask about, but things that are entirely logical for them to need. I think that, you know, occasionally when we talk about this issue, we, we want to do so logically, but we're not doing so personally. And I think it's really important to do so and think about how family formation, things that we know are important in every other sector of how we talk about social issues are still important when we're talking about homeless people. Uh, I'd also say, and I think it's, given how obsessed I've been with this, it's kind of amazing that I took until this long in the episode to say it, but um, a lot of the stuff that we've been discussing here is stuff that I uh, witnessed firsthand uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border in the last couple of weeks. If you haven't heard our episode from last week on the migrant protection protocols and the camp situation that has resulted on the Mexican side of the border with tens of thousands of migrants, like, kind of being just left to wait, uh, a lot of this is stuff that I literally saw in Matamoros 10 days ago. So I would strongly recommend going back and re-listening to that with this in mind, that in addition to the kind of broader policy concerns there, there are a lot of like, I literally saw a van come through with a bunch of hygiene, you know, like paper yeah. hygiene products and a huge swarm of people because of course that's not a thing that when you're trying to, you know, keep your family safe and get all your paperwork together for your court date that you're not going to be able to take care of. So, Hi. Um, so Austin recently essentially decriminalized homelessness, but Alex Jones and Infowars have been coming to a lot of the public meetings and kind of creating a lot of disinformation. That's, I think, well, okay, we've had, we have a lot of squeegee guys and they, the squeegee guys as a group, they're d different individual people, but they have been here for as long as I've lived here, which is I'm an Austin native. I'm sure they were here before, but I, so there's a information issue with like, I think people moving into Austin and getting wrong information about homeless people. And then also the intentional disinformation of gathering people and going to public meetings and 
basically creating riots. Now this is going back to city council in a few weeks. So I don't know how many Austinites are actually here, but what do you suggest we do? I live near 35. So I live near a homeless camp. We had temperatures that were like 118 this summer. I was dropping off cold water. Um, somebody was having medical issues the other day. So I called 911 and waited with them. I just, they're people too. I don't really know what to do. Are you a writer? Because I would totally, you've laid out a really robust theory of how political and demographic change works. And I would love to read this in long form. I'm not, I'm not a writer. Also, unsurprisingly, <laughs> I, as a journalist, my, my answer to a what can we do to fix this problem is I would read about it. Yeah, which do, is some, not actually, do some takes. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I think one of the things, I think the information, um, something that, I, that exists in D.C. and I'm a, I, I am a huge advocate for. Um, so there's a newspaper in D.C. that's run by homeless D.C. residents called Street Sense. And that is basically a newspaper entirely about what homeless people are dealing with, stories focused on like, you know, crimes that happen to homeless people. A really horrifying trend that's been happening lately is, um, you know, violence aimed at homeless people. We saw that happen in California where um, the son of like some wealthy science set a homeless person on fire. Um, you know, we saw in D.C. that people, you know, someone killed two people driving into them on purpose um, two homeless people, including one, you know, one guy who'd been living on the street for like 30 years. And so I think, I think in terms so of, don't do that. Oh, sorry, I wanted to, so that happened here in Austin. Um, somebody threw, I think a lit candle or like a lit flare at a homeless camp. I mean, that really talks about the dehumanization that homeless people experience. But I think way to counter that and the way to counter disinformation is to you know, get the facts from homeless people themselves. So often when we're talking about this issue, you know, it's not as if homeless people are super jazzed about being homeless. Like, I think that there's this idea, and I think we talked about that earlier, that like, you know, these are like antisocial people who are super jazzed, you know, super excited to be pushing grocery carts, carrying all of their possessions, or dealing with extremely severe mental health issues. I mean, they're afraid all the time. And so I think using the information that they can give us and listening to their stories is really important. And I also, you know, re recognizing like why Alex Jones is weaponizing this. Like this is one, it's, he may be- Just good faith disagreement oh, about ideas. Decidedly, decidedly. Like, oh. this, this it's is because it's, Alex Jones values stability. Uh, yes, yeah, it's the more But also the fact that this is going to an audience that's not here. And so, so much of, you know, Fox News and kind of the far right pub like publications are talking about issues that happen in cities in which the people reading or watching do not live. All and right. so you, you have people who live in like Finley, Ohio, who are desperately afraid of like something that happened in New York that they, of a city they had never been to. So I think, you know, the anti-urbanist attitudes that are voiced by Alex Jones and a host of other people are really important to counter, but it's really critical to lift up the stories of homeless people themselves. Because I think in a lot of ways, they know best like what they need and how best to prioritize it just as if, just as we do. And they certainly are going to be well-equipped to talk about what's changing. Right. If that's kind of, if the concern is this is new or this, we don't know how, like we're trying to make this better and it's not working, people who have actually been on the street and can say, yeah, we haven't seen anything different, right. even though the city says it, and that's a very reliable way of gauging the effectiveness of a policy in the short term. 
That looks like we're about out of time, uh, but thanks to all of you uh, for, for coming out here live. Uh, thanks, as always, to folks listening uh, back at home. Uh, email us. <laughs>